morning, everybody. I'm Pauline. I'm a grateful member of the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon and Alateen, and I'm feeling pretty darn grateful to be here today and getting to share what I hope a higher power will channel, a, a message of recovery that one of you will uh, find some message in today that will help you in your next day of recovery. So I do want to thank Connie and the committee for inviting me to come and talk. It's always an honor to get to do some service work in Al-Anon and in AA. And I'm so grateful that this conference allows and invites Al-Anon participation. Um, the way I look at it is, um, you know, I got sick with the alcoholic in my life, and it is quite a blessing to get to get healthy with the alcoholic in my life as well. So I'm very grateful for that. And uh, a big special thanks to Noreen, who took us out to see a little bit of Indianapolis last night. That was too fun. And she brought a book in about the Speedway this morning, and she uh, gave the other half instructions to read it when he was bored. And I said, this next hour would be the prime time for you to read that book because you've heard all this before. So uh, um, I don't mind at all if you open it up. So uh, thanks for this water, and I've got tissues. So uh, let's see what God has in store today. So a little bit about me. Oh, I guess I should say... Um, by God's grace and the fellowship of Al-Anon, I haven't found it necessary to plan the, the murder or death or dismemberment of any parts of my husband's anatomy since sometime in November of 1992. And for that, I'm very grateful, and I think he is too. So uh, back in 1992... Um, uh, well, let me back up a little bit further than that. Back in 1978, um, my dad had a heart attack. And um, all my siblings, we crowded around at the hospital and stuff, and my dad made it through that heart attack. And at that time, the, uh, the, um, my mom said, you know, I'd really like some time by myself. So you kids go scatter. So a girlfriend came by, and she picked me up, and she took me to a little bar in Covington, Kentucky, which is where I grew up. And we walk into the bar, and standing behind the bar is a, at that time, blonde guy with his blue jean vest and his blue jeans and his white Oxford shirt sleeves rolled up. And I walked up to the bar, and I ordered a cocktail, and he looked up at me because I'm a little bit taller than him. So just getting the facts straight, I really am his higher power at some level. So uh, uh, he looked up at me and he said, don't I know you from somewhere? Now there was a piece of me that said, that is the oldest line in the books. However, there was another piece that went, hmm, I wonder how he recognizes me. So we got to chatting and at one point in his life, he lived in the bottom floor of a duplex and my older sister and her roommate lived on the top floor. And my too soon to be husband remembered me from when I was 16. <sighs> it was love already. So uh, we, uh, you know, danced around each other for a little while. And then he invited me out for a date. And our first date was in the state of Indiana. It was in Madison, Indiana, at Cliffy Falls State Park and along the banks of the Ohio with him, me, and a 12-pack of Pabst Blue Ribbon beer. So I had one, 
you do the math. So on our way home from that date, that very first date, he told me that we were going to get married. And I just didn't, I was like overwhelmed that this had all happened. And so I go home that night and very first date, got home late. My folks had a shotgun house, you know, living room, dining room, kitchen in the back kind of thing. And um, I walk in and I notice the house is dark, but there is a glow emanating from the kitchen which is not typical at 1 o'clock in the morning. So I walk back there, and there's my mom and dad sitting in the kitchen with a candle lit. And they're holding hands, and I'm thinking, what has gone? What's, what's the matter? And um, I walked in, and I said, what, what's going on? And mom said, um, did you know that he was divorced? And I lied straight up. I said, well, mom. It isn't like we're getting married or anything. You need like to chill out or something. Even though he had, you know, my, my husband-to-be had invited me to marry him. And so I told my first lie. And uh, to the disease of alcoholism, even though at that time I didn't know that he was an alcoholic. Um, what our dating was like was he would work at the bar, and I would go down to the bar and meet him. And long about 2 o'clock, he'd start tossing some back. And about 2.30, 3 o'clock when he'd get off, we'd go out and have a date starting at about 3 o'clock in the morning. And I used to love those dates because we'd go to some greasy spoon restaurant because he was hungry. And we'd have conversation and he'd share his deepest, darkest secrets with me. I thought I was so special that he was sharing all that with me. And then, um, you know, we'd part ways and go home and go about our daily business. So I, call, I had a name for those conversations. I called it Blue Talk because it always happened in the middle of the night, in the dark of the night when it was, to me, dark blue outside. And I spent the next 14 years trying to recreate experiences for that Blue Talk to happen, and it never did. I knew that, that booze was an issue, but to be honest with you, I didn't grow up around any alcoholics. I thought alcoholics were people who lived under bridges. And so I thought that what he needed was a little managing, maybe a little bit of special guidance, maybe a little bit of channeling down the right path. And I'm sure that I was up for the task. So um, two years later, we were at Mammoth Cave, and he popped the question, and I said yes, and we came home and informed my parents. My mother did not care for him. Uh, we informed my parents that we were going to get married. And my mother said, oh, no, you are not. She said, you are not getting married unless your maternal grandmother blesses this relationship. So uh, my husband, Mike, and I, we go wandering out to Grandma's house, and we sit down at Grandma's, and... We explain what's going on, that, you know, I want to get, we want to get married, and mom said no, and she won't say yes unless you say yes. And she looks at Mike, and she says, uh, well, do you love her? He gave the right answer. He said yes. And he, she looked at me, and she says, well, Pauline, do you love him? And I said, well, yeah, I do. And she said, well, break out the bourbon, then. There's going to be a marriage. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. Please dial the woman at 431-2954. And when my mother answers, please tell my mother that there's going to be a marriage, and then we'll celebrate. 
So uh, in 1980, we got married. And uh, uh, gosh, you know, if you had listened closely at the end of that ceremony, when the bells pealed at the church, you know, it kind of reminds me of, of the Speedway a little bit because um, what I think was going on was, ladies and gentlemen, the games are about to begin. <laughs> because I took the responsibility, the mantle of changing him on, and I was determined to do everything in my power to get him to be the type of person that I thought he should be. Now, that mantle of control was not just felt by my husband. I am proud to say that I also find each and every one of you a possible example or specimen that I would love to try to mess with. I am the person who stands in the grocery store, and if you're in the 12 or less items lane, I will count the items in your cart and I will reach up and hold the sign and show it to you and then inform you how many items you have in your cart and then direct you to the appropriate lane that you should be in. I'm the person who will see you litter and pick up the piece of litter and carry it to you and give it to you and then show you where the receptacle is. I'm the person, if you leave a newspaper on the bus and you get up and leave the bus, I will get off a stop ahead to bring that newspaper to you and ask you to properly dispose of it. Don't check in front of me at lunch today because I'm the person who will know exactly who checked in line first and what position I should be in, the person in front of me and the person directly behind me. That's just the kind of brain I have. I, I remember once I was at a stop, um, stoplight and the sign said, stop, no turn right on red. So I'm sitting at the stoplight, listening to music, singing quite loudly, I'm sure. And a young gentleman was in the car behind me and he's pounding on the horn and he's go giving me this signal to turn right on red. And I thought, oh, no, no, no. Obviously, he needs to be taught a lesson. I flipped my car into park. I got out of the car, and I framed that sign, just like Vanna White. And then I gave him the look, you know, the look that says, obviously, you can't read. And so I'll stand here for a couple of seconds longer till your feeble brain can figure out what the message is. And then I got back in my car, and when the light turned green, it drove off, and I felt no shame. What I felt was excitement. Check one for Pauline. <laughs> now, the other half got to feel all that as well. I remember one period of his drinking, I was, he's a bar drinker, so I didn't see him get drunk at home. So three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten nights a week, whatever it was, he'd go to the bar and drink. And so um, one night, uh, we had a big argument. My favorite time to pick fights with him was at 2.30 in the morning when he would get home. I was the one who started all those arguments, not him. So uh, he came home, and I said, you know, you are never home, never. And my finger was out. And I'm sure I stood up over top of him. You are never home. 
said two words that you never say to someone who is pre-Alanon. He said, prove it. <laughs> I got myself a calendar with the blank squares for each day of the month, multicolored pens, and then I tracked his progress. One color for the first time that he called from the bar saying that he had a business meeting, which was code for let's go drinking, business meeting, and then we had another color for when I called the bar and asked if he was there, and the bartender would muffle the phone and say, Mike, are you here? And, the bar, and then I'd hear Mike say, no, tell her I'm not here. And the bartender would say, he's not here, click. Well, that was another color on the calendar. And then a third color for another time that I'd call. And then a fourth color for when he actually came home. If only I had had Excel spreadsheets and PowerPoint, I could have made a dynamite presentation. There would have been color charts and graphs galore and animations out the yazoo. So I saved the calendar for a month knowing full well that when I presented the evidence, the data, the numbers, that he would look at me and he'd say, Oh, Pauline, love of my life, desire of my existence, you have shown me the evil of my ways. The evil alcohol will never cross my lips again. <laughs> so I did just what they told me to do in Cosmopolitan magazine, I set up a time to talk with my husband and said, we have something important to discuss. I think he got nervous. So he sits in the living room, and he said, what's up? And I said, well, you remember a month ago when you said, I said, you're never here, and you said, prove it. And I said, well, I've collected the data. And so here's the information, and I explained all my colors and we went through the month day by day by day. Lots of data. And at the whole, at the end of it, I thought, this is it. Now I'm waiting for him to say it. And he looked at me and he said, whatever. <laughs> and he got up and went to the bar. <laughs> Didn't quite work out the way I wanted. So a typical night in our house was something like this when I wasn't on my high horse about proving what he was or, or what I thought he needed to do. Typical night is he'd call home and he'd say, I'm going to a business meeting. Y'all know what that's code for. And so uh, I began, as he was out tying one on at the bar, I was home tying on a good obsession. I love a good obsession. Ooh, la, la. It just gives me shivers. Christmas decorations this year, baby shower, how we're going to get home tomorrow. Anything that crosses right in front of me is possible fodder for my obsession of the day. My favorite obsession before getting to Al-Anon was him, everything he did, and his drinking. So he'd call and he'd say that he had a business meeting. And I'd say, what time are you going to be home? And he, some of you may know the answers to this. He'd say, 6.30, maybe 7. And so around 6.30 or 7, when he didn't come home, I had the numbers for all the bars that he visited memorized. I'd dial him up. It's pre-cell phone. 
call up the bar, and I think you heard me say that the bartender would do, would say whatever he said, and so that just added a little more fuel to my obsession fire. So now I'm not only getting obsessed, I'm getting mad, because now I know he's lied. So I'd wait a few hours, call again, same story. Sometimes I'd go and I'd drive around the bar and survey the scene, because when he came home, and he was going to get a lot of questions when he came home, I wanted to make sure that I knew the answers when he came in the door. So that would go on and on, and every time a car would go, oh, then, then it would get to 11 o'clock. And according to my world, 11 o'clock is the time that I need to go to bed, and by golly, he, he needs to be here too. And so when he wouldn't be there, I'd lay in bed and try to sleep, and every time a car would go down the street, I'd hop up, go to those blinds and smack them open. When it wouldn't be him, they'd smack shut, and another layer of anger would get poured onto my obsession. Over and over and over, as the number of cars went down the street, I'd get madder and madder and madder. So then along 2.30-ish, he'd come home. So what I did, of course, was lay in bed, close my eyes, and put on my best virginal look. I'd lay there just as quiet as a church mouse. I'd wait for him to come in and clomp up the steps, bounce off the walls, whatever. And as soon as he laid down in bed, the wicked witch of the West levitated. <laughs> I'd sit up in bed, and I'd look at him, and I'd, I'd start yelling, Where have you been? Well, I knew right where he'd been. He'd answer, how many drinks did you have? He'd say, two, maybe three. I'd say, you're a liar. Were there women at that bar that you talked with? He'd say, no. I'd say, you're a liar. And whatever he said, I said, no, you're a liar. Or I'd get up in his face, he's laying down, and I'd say, you know, I don't have to put up with this crap from you. I used a lot more colorful language. I called him everything but a human being, and I got pleasure out of doing it. Yet, I would tell you that I loved him. Now, if that's the definition of love, we can all understand that I was a little screwed up. So we'd have a fight from 2.30 till 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning. And at some point, in high drama, I'd grab my pillow, I'd march to the door, and I'd say, I don't have to put up with this anymore. I'm going downstairs to sleep. And I'd march down the steps, and I'd stop at the bottom of the steps. Oscar-winning performance, mind you. Oscar, worthy of a gold statuette. And I'd wait at the bottom of the steps because I just knew one of these times he'd come to that bedroom door and he'd look down at me and he'd say, Pauline, love of my life, desire of my existence, the evil alcohol will never cross my lips. Please come back to bed. That never happened. What gets poured on me? By now, I'm enraged, enraged and obsessed. I'd stomp back up the steps. By now, he's doing what anyone would do who's been out drinking at a bar all night. He is snoring and farting at the same time. <laughs> I find that completely repulsive adds a little more anger to the steam, and I'd walk over, 
and wake him up. I'd get right over his face and start yelling again. Ding, ding, ding. Round two is about to start in our house. Some nights it was a two-round night. Sometimes it was three. Sometimes it was four. Sometimes I'd lose count. I loved him, all right. Wow. So that went on for about 14 years. About every year, I'd go to the employee assistance person at work, and I'd schedule an appointment, and I'd sit down with her, and I didn't know it now, but I would take his inventory. I'd walk in, and I'd tell her everything that he did that made me mad. I could do it alphabetically, chronologically, numerically, by people he was associated with. It did not make a difference. However I felt that day, I'd give her the information. And inevitably, she'd reach across the table, and she'd grab my arm, and she'd rub my arm, and she'd say, Pauline, you know there's some place that you can go for people like you. There's a group called Al-Anon, and they help people when you love someone who drinks a lot. And the whole time she's mouthing this, I'm really seeing the talking heads. That's all I'm seeing. And I'm thinking, you did not hear a single word that I said, lady. If you think that I am going to a group and airing my dirty laundry in front of a group of people, that is not going to happen. So I leave the room getting nothing except confirmation that I was right. Because after all, I'm in charge of all y'all. All y'all. Wow, that's a lot of y'alls in one sentence. I'm in charge of all y'all. And so she didn't get it. And what I needed to do was just keep on marching ahead and doing what I needed to do, telling you how to live your life, telling him how he needed to live his life, and just keep doing it. And I was miserable on the inside. Miserable. A lot of guilt. I blamed myself for his drinking because I didn't know he was alcoholic. I thought I wasn't pretty enough, I wasn't smart enough, I wasn't sexy enough, I didn't make enough money, I wasn't whatever. I just wasn't it. And so I doubted our relationship and what he could possibly be doing in the relationship. A lot during that time I was working out of town. I was working in Texas a lot. I'd leave on Sunday night or Monday morning and fly back home on Friday. And I would try to manage his drinking from afar. I would sit at a bar at the hotel and nurse a cocktail while I was trying to see if I could still be a player when we got divorced because I was just convinced that that's where it was. Could I still flirt? Could I still be a player and get the bar phone and call him and track him down? Multitasking at its finest, really when you think about it. But yet I would tell you that I loved him. I didn't care for the way he, that he smoked. I convinced him that if he stopped smoking, I'd buy him a fishing boat, which I did. He stopped smoking. Took me like a month to notice that he stopped. <laughs> Why? Because I'm so obsessed with all of you. I don't even notice what he's doing. He is like not, he's a priority, but not the highest priority. I'm filled with a lot of shame. I don't tell anyone what's going on in my home. No one. If anybody asks, I say, we're fine. Fine. We're fine. 
fine. Everything's fine. Mike, he's fine. Me, I'm fine. And I was miserable on the inside. I don't know what happened to you, but what the family disease of alcoholism did to me is I lost myself. The Pauline before 1978 was not the same Pauline that walked through the doors in 1992, and it's not the same Pauline that's here today because she keeps transitioning and changing and morphing as my higher power works with me. But back then, I didn't know what had happened to me. I was on the hamster wheel, and I did not know how to get off. All I thought was that divorce was the answer, that that's what we needed to do. That would cure it. My other thing that I used to think was that what really needed to happen was he needed to die. And so I went out and I bought the little black dress and the shoes. And I, what I prayed for at night, when I did pray, was that he would have an accident on our circle freeway at home. I didn't want him to hurt any of you. I was kind of hoping that he'd have an accident and the car would just, you know, crash and he would die immediately. I had already figured out how I would spend the life insurance policy and how the tears would fall across my cheek as you came through the receiving line at the funeral. Because I'm a, I was and still can be a pre-planner. And so uh, that's where things ended up. In 1992, we lost our home, the cars, the money, the moose, all gone, bankruptcy. We moved to where we live now in Newport, Kentucky. And another layer of shame was laid on, I took on another layer of shame, that it was, um, that's not how my parents had raised me, was what I told myself. Pauline, they raised you better than to lose everything the way you did. And here you are in Newport, which was considered Sin City, you know, prostitutes and drugs and gambling in Newport. And here you are living there. Now it's very shishi-poo-poo, but back then it wasn't. And uh, I was still snapping open those blinds every night at 2.30 in the morning, getting in his face, trying to prove that he was drinking too much and calling him all kinds of names and saying all kinds of things to him that I need not to have said. So um, in 1992, one night, he is out at his favorite hunt at a business meeting. Oh, I forgot to tell you one night about going in the bar. I think I should tell you that how much I do like drama. One night, um, we, were, we lived in Florence. If you go down 75 and you see the Florence Y'all water sign, that's where we were. We had the big house. And we're in, uh, he's at his little pub in Florence, and we've gone through the phone calls, and um, it is February. So our weather in February is much like yours. It's cold, it's damp, it's ugly. And uh, he's not home. And I've gone to the bar and driven around once because I wanted to know how I should ask my questions when he came home. And uh, I had hair down to my waist. I'd laid in bed because it was after 11 o'clock and he should have been home. And uh, I just got mad enough where I thought, I'm going to go over to the bar one more time and see what's going on. So I get up. I have on my 
my bed, my bed hair. I put on my red velour robe, and the velour was mostly gone. I'd lost the belt, and as a pre-Alanon, I don't know about you, but I learned not to take care of myself. I spent all my time taking care of him and others. I lost the belt, so I had a piece of jute that I tied. I put on my blue flip-flops and my dark gradient glasses so that no one would recognize me. I get in the car, and I go over to the bar, and I circle around the bar. I spy his red truck, and I'm thinking, oh, yeah, cha-ching, he's here. Good. It's 1 o'clock in the morning, and I thought, you know what? I've had it. I am just mad, 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 mad. I am going to go get him, and he is coming home with me. So I get out of the car, and I walk into this bar, and it had, like, saloon-type doors. And I walked into the bar, into the, in there, and I just stopped right inside the doors. And I could see everybody stopped in the bar. And they all turned around and they looked. Yeah, there's a new sheriff in town. Look at her. Whew, hot stuff. Everybody turned except for one guy. Blonde, nursing a beer, smoking a cigarette up at the bar. My charming husband. So I walk through the bar, giving nods to people as I go through. Probably should have given them the wave had I thought about it. And I go up to the bar, and I lean over to him, and I said, Sweetheart, finger out, sweetheart, if you do not get up right this minute and leave this bar, I am going to cause a scene. As if I hadn't already. Lucky for him, I think I scared him just enough that he got up and he walked behind me. Lesson learned, drama works. That's what the lesson that I took away. Drama works. Pauline, you need to up your game and just be a little more dramatic. Obviously, that pays off. See how a person like me learns her lessons? Ah, guilt and intimidation, important factors. Ha-ha! So in 1992, he is um, out at his favorite haunt having cocktails. I'm at home. It's after 11. And I decide that um, I'm going to lay down and try to get some sleep. We're in Newport. We've lost everything. We have no money. I don't go out with friends anymore because I'm too ashamed. I don't want them to know what's going on. I'm lying to my parents, my brothers and sisters, and all extended family about what's going on. It's a hot mess. And uh, I lay down in bed, and I think what happened to me that night is a higher power intervened. I had kissed off God. God didn't give me what I wanted. I had prayed to God, God bringing home sober tonight. God, if you bring bring him home sober tonight by 1 o'clock, then I'll only give him a silent treatment for two days, and I promise I'll make his coffee for him with no attitude until 10 o'clock in the morning. I had it all planned out. That's how I prayed. And God didn't give me what I asked for. I don't need God. Screw that. So I'm laying in bed, and I say what I said every night when he was out drinking. Pauline, you do not have to put up with this crap from him. I'd say it every night he would go out, and I'd say it to him with lots of colorful language around it. 
And for some reason, one night in October of 1992, that message finally made it from my head to my heart. Big difference. There was just that little um, Grinch little amount of love left in me that it hit it. And I fell asleep. There was no high drama. I waited for a couple of days. I sat down with him and I said, Mike, I love you with my whole heart. However, I cannot do this anymore. I do not know what has to change, but something needs to. And I let it go. At that time, he was no longer working, and if he were up here talking, he would tell you that he was unemployable. He was sitting at home, and uh, I came home one day from work, and he said, Do you have that EAP number? <laughs> of course, being a good pre Alanon, I was over prepared all the time. I casually whipped it out of my purse, handed it to him, and he called the EAP folks. And they scheduled an assessment for him. So he goes off to the doctors, and he comes home with his little certificate. And he announces to me, shows me his certificate, much like a child might show their art that they made in kindergarten, at least that was my perception of it, his certificate that he, they went through the test and they told him he was an alcoholic. My attitude? Buddy, I've been telling you you are a flippin' drunk for 14 years and one flippin' slip of paper from some stupid doctor who doesn't know you and hasn't lived with you through this, has told you you're an alcoholic and you're all about it? <laughs> Go do whatever you need to do and take the horse that you rode with you. Obviously, not a very supportive and understanding wife. But being the dramatic person that I am, I knew someday I'd end up on, on Oprah or Dr. Phil, and I knew that I needed to be supportive. So when he came home from his treatment and said that I needed to go to the family group, <laughs> well, first the bobblehead came out, and I'm like, no, 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 no. And then I thought, oops, Colleen, when you're on TV and that tear falls across your cheek, and you're able to look at him sitting net between you and Dr. Phil. You want the camera to catch that tear really well. So you'd better go and do the right thing. So I said, okay, I will go to your stupid family therapy, whatever that is. So I walked in with a very open and understanding attitude. I think you can tell. So I sat there with that group that night, and I think a higher power worked for me a second time. Because I walked in the group, and I didn't like anybody that I saw. They were white. They were black. They were of various ethnicities, young, old, husbands, wives, children of, grandparents of. I looked at them, and I thought, well, none of them are like me. <laughs> this is not going to go well at all. And then they started to share. And that little light in my heart got a little bit bigger because what I was able to recognize was the similarities in their experiences. Their details were different, 
They had, they all had their "I'm flying off to the bar" story. They all had their calendar story. They all had their telling other people how to make it through the grocery store stories. I was able to hear underneath that and listen for the heart stories, the shame that they felt. Got that? The guilt that they felt. I've got that. The anger and rage that they felt. Check, check. The hopelessness they felt. That was me. Completely hopeless. Wanting so bad to find a solution. Thinking that my 14 years of wanting graphs and proving I was right was going to change him. I wanted a solution to fix him. I wasn't convinced that I had a problem, but I wanted a solution to fix him. And so I left that meeting and, and was in tears all the way home. And Mike leaned over, he put his hand on my thigh, and he said, Honey, why are you crying? And I said, I didn't realize till tonight how crazy I had become. Because in that sharing, I saw me. And I saw how ugly I had become. I had that immediate flash of what I had been like and what I had turned into. And that was not the person that I wanted to be. Not kind, looking for every opportunity to turn the sword in and turn it hard and feel gleeful about it. That was not the kind of person I wanted to be. So I went to that family group, and they said I needed to go to something called Al-Anon, flash back to the lady with the rubbing arms. I'm thinking, why didn't I listen to her? <laughs> so I go to my first Al-Anon meeting. I walked in, and I got very mad. There were three women sitting in that meeting when I walked in the door, and they were laughing. Dang that anyway, this is not a funny disease, I'm thinking. But the other side of me, boy, did she want to laugh again. Because the only laughter I had had in my house for 14 years had seemed like, ha, 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 I gotcha. I wanted that good from the belly, it's just plain funny laugh. And I heard that from those three women, and I thought, hmm, there's something going on here. Maybe those three are nuts, but I'm going to stay and, and investigate. So um, I went to my first Al-Anon meeting on a Tuesday night, and he was off at his AA meetings. He was doing more than 90 in 90 days. He was gone all the time, so I had nothing better to do than to go to meetings myself. So I did 90 in 90 days myself. Traveled all around. I'm very blessed in Northern Kentucky. We have meetings in Northern Kentucky, and there's a lot of meetings, Al-Anon meetings in Cincinnati. So I went to tons of meetings, and I got filled up with the began to get filled up with the program. And I'm so grateful that I found all of those meetings. I started going to meetings, and um, they told me I needed to get a sponsor. And so I thought, I need to do this right. Because in my head, my sick head is like, oh, remember Oprah and Dr. Phil, Pauline? You've got to do this right, girl. You want In case this doesn't work out, what's your plan B? Because I lived in a world 
of there is always another shoe that's going to fall. And I always had to be prepared for the shoe, the contingency plan, and how I was going to feel on any shoe that would fall and how I would feel on each of those contingency plans. I had myself pretty much segregated and segmented as to how I would deal with it and how I would feel about it. That takes a lot of emotional energy to manage. So I get a sponsor, and she begins to guide me through the steps. And I get to step three, which to me is a lot about surrender. And if you're a person like me who really loves all that managing and manipulating kind of stuff, woo, step three is a doozy. Because that means I really have to let go. Wasn't real into the, the God stuff yet, but I gathered the concept of letting go. And what helped me was um, I'm a visual person, and so I envision myself as pretty much an octopus. I go through life, and my tentacles and any my tentacles are always out, always looking for the next good thing that I can wrap my brain around. Christmas decorations, Labor Day party, baby shower, whatever it is. Him, what he's reading, how he's lying on the recliner. It still goes on today. The tentacles are always out. Sometimes they get wrapped real tight. Sometimes they wrap, and then they release. But they're always out. And so what I had to envision was I needed to learn how to let go of the tentacles. And what helped me with that were the Al-Anon slogans. How important is it? Ooh, that would release a little bit. Live and let live. Ooh, that one was a little harder to do. Do I really want him to live? Hmm. Just for today, one day at a time, I think I'd like him to live just one more day. And so uh, I learned to let go and learned to um, release. And then I, I had to learn through one, two, and three to establish a relationship with a higher power. I came in here not liking your God stuff. Every time I heard it, I thought, oh, my Lord, I am going to rewrite those steps, and there will be no mention of that in there. That has just got to go. And then I sat in the meetings, those 90 meetings in 90 days, and following after that, a lot of meetings. And I heard people share about their higher power. And I began to reflect on my own life and how my higher power had been there the entire time. I just, in my hot messedness, had not seen it. I just ignored it because I was very self-centered, self-righteous, self-willed, self-determined. You get the picture. And so I found a higher power that was comfortable for me, and that cinched the deal on step three. Then I could let go and let God. Because what it came down to for me with step three was, is my higher power everything? And I still have to ask that question today. Is my higher power everything? Whenever there's a tough time, Pauline, is your higher power everything? If your higher power is everything, why are you sitting in worry, doubt, and fear? What are the actions, Pauline, that you need to take that say, that reflect, your higher power is everything? Instead of sitting in your emotional rocker 
going back and forth on the same thing. So get in the program, and um, a few years into the program, um, I get very sad. I just get sad. I can't seem to move beyond sadness. And I talked to my sponsor, and she said, what's going on? And I share with her what's going on, and what we realize is that I had stuffed my feelings to the point that I had none. I had um, never grieved my father passing when my dad passed away. I managed everybody. Okay, you show up at the funeral home at this time, and you be here, and you be there. Lights, camera, action, it's a funeral. And the fact that I couldn't have children, I did the same thing. I stuffed it and stuffed it and stuffed it. And all of a sudden, my higher power gives me the opportunity to actually have an opportunity to deal with all that. And that wasn't easy. However, my emotional landscape became richer for getting to have that opportunity to deal with it. And although I didn't get to have children, very conveniently, and I think my higher power's hand in it, one of my sponsees needed a birthing coach. And guess who she asked? Pretty awesome for a person who wasn't able to have children. So uh, we go on through the program, and um, I'm doing the deal. I'm involved in a lot of service work. Early on, I got involved in service work, and I'm involved in a lot of service work still today. At the group level, I'm involved in the convention back home, next year's convention, both the AA and the Al-Anon. I'm involved at the area level. I'm an Alateen sponsor. So I'm involved in a lot of service work. And what I get out of that service work is how to apply the traditions to relationships. I get to sit in meetings and watch us all get mad and hug and love each other on the way out. I never did that at home. Lord, I'd get mad and hold on to a grudge for about three or four days and find convenient ways to bring it back up, just to, you know, put it in just a little bit and remind them about who really thinks she knows what's going on. And so I got to learn how to apply those traditions in my relationship. But I don't do the program perfectly. At one point in the program, I had, uh, much like Charlie shared this morning, I had a work deal that changed my meeting schedule. And I had to, um, I missed a lot of meetings for about two weeks. And I ended up in a, Mike and I ended up in a big box bookstore. And I'm in the big box bookstore because I'm too cheap to buy the book on Feng Shui, How to Have a Peaceful Home. I'm reading the book, and I'm looking in the book, and I notice a woman knocks over a carton of calendars. And then she leaves the scene of the crime. I dog ear the page in the book. I close it up. I stalk the woman through the big box bookstore, and I raise, my, raise myself up to all six foot one. And I look at her and I say, ma'am, she knocked over a box of calendars right back in that department. Come back with me and I'll help you pick them up. She walks right behind me. Remember, guilt and intimidation. She walks right behind me. I duck down and I start to put the calendars in the back, in, back in the carton. And I notice she's just watching me. She's not helping. Well, obviously, this requires a second dose of guilt. 
So I raised myself back up to 6'1", and I looked down at her and I said, Oh, man, if each of us took responsibility for the mistakes that we made, wouldn't this be a more wonderful world to live in? Now, please help me clean up your mess. And she sits down and puts the cartons in the, ca- in the carton, calendars in the carton, and off she goes. I go back to my Feng Shui book. I open it back up, dog-eared page no- nicely marked. And all of a sudden I go, oh, my God, Pauline, who died and made you the queen of the bookstores that you have to go around and correct people and help, clean, help them clean up messes? Why didn't you just clean it up yourself? So then I thought, oh, my God, which step do I need to apply? Amends. Boom. Action girl. Let's find the woman. So I'm racing through the bookstore looking for the woman. I can't find her. Mike's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, i got to make amends. I've got to make amends. I said, I can't find her. Come on, let's go over to Walmart. I'm going to be a greeter. He's like, Walmart already has greeters. I said, that's okay. I'll make friends with the woman, but I need to make amends. What I learned from that is that I don't do this perfectly, and I'm so grateful that I don't, because what I want to do is keep learning, and I think my higher power provides ample opportunity for me to put things into practice and learn. Several years ago, um, a little bit later on, both of our mothers end up passing in the same year. Now, my mom, you know, didn't like him. Um... Some cool things happened the night my mother passed. My mother passed on Thanksgiving Day, 2002. And um, the night before she passed, we'd gotten a call. She was in hospice care, and we all went over, my siblings and spouses and all. We crowded around, and they said, oh, she'll make it through. Go home and get some rest. So I volunteered to stay on, and everybody went home. And Mike came over and picked me up takes me home and tucks me into bed around 7 in the morning on Thanksgiving morning. And around 9 o'clock, the phone rings. And I pick it up because I think it's, it's somebody in the family. And it is a um, man from Atlanta, Georgia, in the AA, asking me to come and do something like I'm doing here today. And he wants me to come that very weekend. Someone had canceled. And I said, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't do it. And I started crying. And he said, uh, what's the matter? And I said, uh, my mom's in hospice care, and they don't think she's going to make it through the day. And he pauses, real, and he says real quietly, he says, uh, guess where I was last night? I said, where? He said, I was at the nursing home because my mother-in-law is in hospice care. Want to talk? And for a half an hour, person that I'd never met, had that language of the heart that you only get here in the rooms of recovery. Is my higher power good or what? And I know your higher power is just as good. My job is to recognize the goodness of my higher power and be eternally grateful for those gifts, for everything that my higher power gives me. Three years ago, I'm sitting at work and my phone rings my office phone, and <clears throat> it's the other half. And he says, um, honey, I think I'm having a heart attack. I'm driving myself to the hospital. All right, I think. 
I go to the hospital. I end up, you know, it's lots of drama around that. He's alive. <laughs> they had to bring him back. Um, and I end up in a hospital waiting room in the heart unit. And I'm sitting there just filled with worry, doubt, and fear. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Breathe, Pauline. Breathe. You know, they don't know what they're going to do. The nurse comes out, and they give you, you know, this could happen, that could happen, this could happen. You know how it is. And I'm going, oh, my God. This is awful. What am I going to do? I need to call you. Who am I going to call? I just worried out and fear, worried, and that's all that's in me. And a lady comes, and she sits down by me, and she looks at me, and she says, I think I know you from somewhere. And I'm thinking, oh, Jesus Christ. I don't know. I'm thinking, I don't know you. I don't know you. I need to sit here and worry out and fear. You know, I'm thinking, go away. And she says, did you go to those meetings? Those, I think it was called Al-Anon meetings on Friday night. And I'm thinking, oh, no, not now, God. I don't want to be of service now. Worry, doubt, and fear. Obsession. I get to have this one. This is serious. And I looked at her and I said, I, I remember faces, not names. And I said, you know, you do look familiar to me. And she said, oh, yeah, I used to cry every Friday night. I just bawled and bawled and bawled. I always had tissues. I bawled and bawled and bawled. And I said, you know, I, I seem to remember it. And I paused and I thought, God, I get the message. What you're saying to me is, I've got it. My immediate question to God in my head is, God, do you have it in the way that I want you to have it? <laughs> and I thought, Pauline, do you believe your higher power is everything? That's a tough one. When you know they've brought him back twice with paddles, and you really don't know what's going on. You know, a lot of it is just probably lack of information. But I was an emotional mess. I thought, you know what? Pauline, this is a time to walk the talk. Your higher power is giving you this opportunity to be of service, be of service. So I looked at the woman and I said, yeah, I remember you. You did come and cry a lot. You came with so-and-so. I remember him. He moved to Florida. And you know how we do in Al-Anon. You know, we chatted up. So we chatted up. And she leaves and goes and, and deals with her husband. And Mike made it through that. Once again, my higher power shows up and is an awesome, awesome higher power. I just need to pay attention to the opportunities that he gives me. Last week, I had a big opportunity. Just to keep you all current, last Thursday, I retired. That's what I say. Woohoo! 24-7 with the alcoholic in my life. If you're an Al-Anon, you understand why I'm twitching. It was so cute. It, it filled my heart. Um, Thursday, Mike came up and gave me a big hug and a smooch. And he said, you know, it's been a week, and we've gotten along really well, and we've laughed. And I looked and I said, remember, one day at a time. <laughs> but you know, I, I, I think that that's a pretty cool thing. I'm old enough to retire and young enough to enjoy it. I get to do that. I get to be of service to Al-Anon. 
I get to be in love with a, a person who loves to drink. I get to do stuff with my mom. I get to stroke my mother-in-law's hair as she's passing away. I get to be there when she transitions. I get to hold my sponsees when they cry. I get to cry on my sponsor's shoulder. And I'm grateful for all the good and the not so good because they all take me to the place where I become happy, joyous, and free. Thank you.